Hey friend, it's Forrest, your favorite librarian. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. And welcome back to episode nine. This is Forrest, your favorite librarian. This week's episode is entitled Pro-Black, Canceling Our Own, as we explore the definition and what truly pro-blackness is, as well as cancel culture and how it benefits, cis, and also sets back the black community and those a part of the diaspora community. Tonight, we are going to examine specifically white complicity and performance wokeness, gender and race-based emotions, history over relevance, but also to whom is the true villain here. There are some titles that I want to share with you all to assist you with tonight's episode, as well as this week. The first is, Well That Escalated Quickly, Memoirs and Mistakes of an Accidental Activist by Francesca Ramsey. The next, which is one of my personal favorites, A Black Theology of Liberation. I'm utilizing the 20th anniversary edition by James, James E. Cohn. The next is a 2021 title that really resonated with me, A Black Woman's Perspective, Black Exhaustion, Karens, and Other Threats to Black Lives and Well-Being by Teresa B. Robinson. And last but not least, which is a beautiful title, I recently discovered Hidden Legacies, African Presence in European Antiques by T. Ward. So if you need any more information about these titles, definitely check out the description as well as favoritelibrarian.com for more insight. But first, let's just jump on into it. You know, truly, when we examine the definition of pro-blackness. Historically, this theory means supporting or favoring all black people in historical practice, in celebration, through visibility, and in a sense, to also allow non-black people or those that aren't of color or part of that communal um, collective are able to truly acknowledge that this question is often posed lacking the nuance necessity to have a valid conversation that is not solely based upon straight cisgender black male experiences as well as those and other intersections but yet the definition I want to utilize tonight with pro-blackness is that it is a lifestyle that encourages the economic growth and development of black people as a whole with the purpose of increasing wealth whether it be financial mentally psychologically spiritually and the population of black people around the world, not just within the Americas, but also abroad and in other areas. And so with that definition, and let me just repeat that again, pro-blackness is a lifestyle that encourages the economic growth and development of black people. And that includes queer folk, that includes biracial individual, that includes those of the diaspora community, those on the continent of Africa as well as increases the wealth and population of black people around the world. So when we first, I want to dive into how gender and race based emotions are utilized a part of pro blackness and also aids the foundation of what many people perceive as cancel culture. You know, cancel culture in my interpretation is a form of gatekeeping a form of allowing those that meet the standards or the expectations of specific archetypes or tropes or expressions of gender or race that are perceived traditionally or accepted or palatable. And so in the black community specifically, there are archetypes and tropes that dictate progression, that define success, and that also show where growth is needed or healing. For example, the angry black woman, the aggressive black man, the flamboyant feminine, 
feminine um, cisgendered gay black man, the um, assertive feminine um, lesbian woman. There are so many, uh, an array of archetypes, the religious older spiritual auntie, the gay cousin, and yet these illustrate otherness, these inner, these, these tropes and these archetypes also illustrate a system of intersectionality that Kimbrell Crimshaw beautifully articulates, but yet with this expression of black excellence and black identity, it signals to the rest of the community a level and an increase of social influence, of social wealth, of social credibility. But yet the originators and the influencers of culture that's, that's, that comes from a source of blackness is not always perceived as valuable. There's not a a baseline of respect. There are politics of bureaucracy, a favoritism, and I believe that what encourages cancel culture. For example, when we when we accept, when we explore, when we examine specific gender expressions and cisgendered an array of different bodies, it also comes at the openness of what is possible based upon our understanding of the individual or what is around us. So that's why I encourage many people to read. You know, one of my favorite titles amongst the list that I provided you is Black Exhaustion, Karens, and Other Threats to Black Lives, as well as Francesca's memoir. Because, you know, when I, excuse me, Francesca Ramsey, you know, many of her titles really provides a narrative that is very transparent. She happened to walk into a role that aligned with her passions and purpose. So when she received what she defines in chapter two as black lash, that's because of the way she loves her lifestyle does not traditionally align with those that believe to be pro-black. You know, pro-black to many people's interpretation or understanding is that you marry black, you support black, you prioritize black, your focus is for the betterment of the black community first. And that is... That is plausibly understandable, but yet we also must begin this story, not in the beginning, but at the end. If we are in support of them, how do we arrive to that conclusion that we haven't always been supporting them, individually or collectively? And yet also, what will replace this confusion or or imbalance? And I think that there is a wealth of abstract research on this. And yet when we look at the duality of tradition, there is a range, there's an openness and space for youthfulness. There's an open space for you to explore, but it's in private and it's never in a celebration of, okay, to be pro-black, you can also date someone of color or someone that is white and still have similar morals or cardinal points of your same moral compass that others may have if they married someone that is black or that identifies in the same heritage background or ancestral background as their partner. And yet, even if their partner is not cisgendered or is a part of the queer spectrum, they also are still supporting certain pro-black tropes, excuse me, pro-black theories or ideas. And so when I, and so when I encourage those and challenge those to re-examine how we utilize race-based emotions to manipulate certain canceling, it's really to understand what is the foundation of that? How are we perceiving that these emotions, these expressions are toxic or are not allowing us as a whole to be progressive and move forward? You know, progress is not linear. And there's something in the 
academic article by J. Celeste Wadley Jean um, entitled Debunking the Myth of the Angry Black Woman and Exploration of Angry and Youthful African-American Women. And uh, there's something that she expresses that female archetypes limit certain gender expressions because of the of their attachment to patriarchy and certain certain social constructs do not allow for specific visibility or otherness or exploration of what is around us based upon what isn't perceived in traditional values or settings simply because simply because what is lacking is an extreme point most of the abstract research that explores specific gender and race-based emotions and how cancel culture is benefited simply because that and that leads me into my next point. There is a performance wokeness within not only our community, but those that support us in allyship, white complicity. And white complicity is not only presence in whiteness in white bodies, but also in black bodies and other people of color. Your proximity and your attachment to whiteness also reflects how you value it, prioritize it, and, or may possibly have it at the center or core of some of your standards or expectations of self or those around you. And so in the title by Teresa B. Robinson, Black Exhaustion, Karens, and Other Threats, there are simply some beautiful points that she shares. And, you know, white complicity and performance wokeness is supported by surveillance capitalism because you're able to articulate your audience and also refine your market based upon need and want, supply and demand. And something that we see with the Black Lives Movement, since the... since the height of COVID, there has always been an uproar and a, a low bubbling tension of racial, of racial tension that during the middle of 2022, at the height of COVID, I would believe, yes, there was an uproar, but this movement was aided because there was a bed of uncertainty and frustration and at this time, many, many of those that were not brave, but were able and that had the mindset and that were committed were also organizing during the cultivation and the visibility, the, the height, the height of visibility for Black Lives Matter movement. We see great work and organization that many may not historically have perceived to be plausible or have seen circulate in their community or knew was possible, plausible. But yet, with this visibility, we see many great leaders, not only of the Black Lives Movement, but allyship, but yet many corporations, organizations are able to also capitalize off of this. Many of the leaders of the Black Lives Movement, we now see in certain commercials. And then we also ask ourselves, well, if they are now becoming visible and are a face and not a mouthpiece of a movement, but are able to articulate certain ideas and theories that these movements have organized to express the objectives of liberation that they want and also illustrate the journey of personhood as well as providing and shining light on certain issues that are not also seen like all black lives matter not just black lives matter no all including trans and queer and those that are not easily defined or easily obtained visibility in spaces that a sense of blackness can simply be present and so when we look at white complicity and performance wokeness yes there is also a weight of exhaustion there 
people of color have to face and deal and also discuss race, racial tension, injustice, social injustice, as well as how this affects us social economically, financially, and how this infrastructure is present on many levels but yet navigating this as a person of color is exhausting there's a title that I've previously read and circulated and mentioned before a uh, black fatigue um, by winters beautiful author and researcher and it talks about how exhaustion and racial injustices and racism and microaggressions and how specific intersections without the acknowledgement of support and resources and professional guidance and also community organization and organizing that this weight of pursuing liberation can burden and also weigh down the black body physically and emotionally and that there are more physical disparities and and illnesses that arise when racism is present in the black body as we navigate it through youth adolescence adulthood and even as we pass this fight and faith on to other generations which is why I believe that certain emotions are passed down through generations that we are not only exposed to them biologically but that they're passed down through the spirit of culture which leads me to my next point History over relevance, which is a bulk of tonight's discussion. And there is a beautiful, beautiful portion. And let me pull up in Black Exhaustion. Let me pull to the title so that I can read this from you. Um, In Act 5, White Complicity and Performance Wokeness, it begins with such a beautiful, beautiful quotation. And let me, excuse me, poem. And let me just read a portion of it. Uncomfortable White Friend, a poem. And this is at the beginning of White Complicity, Performance Wokeness. I shake you up, wake you up, disrupt you, interrupt you, pierce you, re-steer you, turning you into excuseless, time to get purposeful. So go ahead, be annoyed, be irritated, be angry, be sure. You know the why of your unsettling. Sit with it. Let it stir you, unfur in you, mold you, unfold in you, equip you to fix it, to remix it till everybody gets it. Like, damn, do you hear that? Like, oh, the chills it gives me. And then as it pairs with this, which I believe is a, a nod to Audre Lorde, she begins, their silence isn't golden. And as we know, your silence cannot provide you protection or invisibility and so it says silence has always played a part in the contract let me go back a bit and explain radicalization is the arbitrary historical grouping of people according to our skin color and skin tones Mm. so she's even hitting on color stroke and color tokenism it became a tool to justify the cruel treatment of non-white people and you know I truly believe that without acknowledging and healing certain traumas oppressed individuals assume the characteristics of our oppressor of the aggressor and yet without checking these traumas or harms we subconsciously inflict these harms on ourselves in a form of self-sabotaging subconsciously and also project hurt and harm onto others in a sense and that trope hurt people hurt people but heal people attract healing And so it continues, radicalization 
was the close forerunner to white supremacy. It morphed into colonialism, slavery, and Jim Crow laws, whereby the overriding principle or belief is that people of certain races or skin color are fundamentally different and therefore deserve their treatment. And I believe so because color, there's a colorism in many people of color. And, you know, I love this photo that circulated around not only 2022, but before then, but it became very popular around the Black Lives Matter movement visibility. There's a photo of Andre 3000 where he's wearing a black jumpsuit and in letters it says, why, and I'm paraphrasing, why are all the darker individuals globally treated differently? That's because colorism affects many communities. We see this with the caste system in South Asia and around Europe. And also we see an, a, an affinity, an appreciation for lightness in many people of color communities, not only in the Asian community, in the black community, in the disport community, in the Caribbean community, but not only is bleaching, but fairness is prioritized. And that not only it supports, but it also maintains a safeness for white fragility and white complicity. And so when we see wokeness in a sense, in the space of pro-blackness, we also must challenge to whom are the leaders that illustrate blackness and define it. And if it also includes visibility, what leaders are visibly sending a message that we celebrate all variations of blackness in any hue, in any queer expression, in any gender expression, and etc. What is the duality? Are we still aligning ourselves with traditional values of what we perceive as blackness that supports and gatekeeps what pro-blackness is and also funds the cornerstone for canceling? And that's what leads me into how we cancel our own. Intersectionality, the term was coined by Kimbrell Crimshaw, and I highly always go back to this term because black women have always been at a source of social influence, and yet the term intersectionality was initially illustrated to illustrate how black women are at di different intersections than many other folk or people, but yet we are not perceived as greater or less because we're not even initially or perceived as plausibly being equals to others. And yet the term intersectionality has now been used to illustrate so many other groups and how they are also snubbed of their importance, humanity, and also as just being simply a part of humankind, mankind. And so with this, there is a form of truly asking ourselves history over relevance. What do we prioritize when we examine pro-blackness, blackness, but also cancel culture? Is it the history of the individual or the collective, or is it the relevance? And how do we articulate the attachment of such? You know, many of us in the black community, religion is the source of our understanding of life, of our individuality. It defines who we are as an individual. But in the title, a Black Theology of Liberation by James E. Cohn. And again, I'm using, I'm utilizing the 20th anniversary edition. There's a portion that he shares on page 92 that I really want to share. And, you know, let's, let's truly explore it because it provides some formal critical approaches to the existential idea of what human, humankind is, liberation, but the presence of blackness as a human being and what we perceive as theology and, and how it has shaped our understanding of specific structured religions and faith-based practices. It says the image of God in human nature was not to be identified with abstract 
rationality or freedom. Mm. Let, okay, let me read that again. Because see, that that right there just went over a whole bunch of folk head. Let me say that again, baby. And I'm on page 92 of the Black Theology and Liberation. This is discussing uh, the chapter, The Human Being in Black Theology. This is on page 92. It reads, the image of God in human nature was not to be identified with abstract rationality or freedom. Although all the so-called neo-Orthodox theologians had unique approaches to the idea of the image, they all agreed that it involved a whole person and the divine human encounter. So here we're able to see not only the history of how we have compiled an image of what we perceive leadership and authority looks like in the religious setting, but how man is the curator of this image, of this interface, and how as a collective, this assists the individual. And yes, religion provides that sense of guidance, but we also must look at how many of these things are man-based and based upon our interpretation and understanding of self and the world around us. So when we read, and I hope that you all really, really dive into the Black Theology of Liberation by James E. Cohn, because this title is woo kicking ass, similar to um, Robinson's title, Black Exhaustion, Karens, and Other Threats. But there's a, there's actually a, an act, a chapter in Black Exhaustion that I really want us to ex examine too, that really piggybacks off of how we center religion at the core of our understanding. In Act Two, Karen's Her Kin and Her Kin, it really talks about how black, how white women are the mothers of mass destruction. And that when we look at the home environment of what implicit bias, of what racial, of what racism, and how certain hatred is shared, circulated, but taught, to whom is the pillar in the home? What language is accepted and circulated in the home where until you're brought to an awareness that you are circulating implicit bias, that there's a level of hate that is at the core of a misunderstanding and xenophobia. And so when we look at how some arrive to this conclusion, that there are portions of performance wokeness because of certain unbalance, uncertainty, but also a lack of community. Allyship is, is a very gray area. It is not black and white, in my opinion, because allyship is based upon intention. And unless all can define or in accordance or agree or even like your intentions for how you are supporting and being a, an ally, it is easy to perceive you as being a part of those that contribute to the oppression or are part of the aggression, unbeknownst to you verbalizing that you are part of the, you're part of the struggle. You're down for the struggle and also help to be a part of that liberation, but you're also present and committed to listening and being, and and unlearning certain things that unbeknownst to you and subconsciously that you were not aware of through your healing and conversations with your inner child and exploring other literature like what we've discussed, what we discuss and, and are exploring, that you are open-minded and you're keeping an open heart, but that you do not know everything. Similar to those a part of the black experience and that align themselves with pro-blackness and also utilize cancel culture, it is easy to 
perceive ourselves as having enough knowledge to move on certain decisions that make us feel that we are that we are sure and you know when you utilize specific emotions that make you feel confident you're signaling to someone that you're certain you're competent you're assured you have the emotional range to not only influence others but to maintain that sense of security because of the credibility you've you've accumulated through your social credit through your investment in the community through your attachment to the community through through your interactions and engagement with the community and so i believe not only when we look at the black lives matter the womanist community but the feminist community as well we see that there is a heightened visibility of a lot more women of color that are now being able to visit to verbalize certain concerns that are mostly verbalized from the male perspective from people of color communities but now there's a space for women of color to verbalize these concerns without being perceived as emotional without being perceived as highly vigilant without them perceiving as being indecisive or led by negative emotions that their social influence is valuable that it's comp it is also in a way can be compensated too and again that goes back to that surveillance capitalism because many corporations are aligning themselves with specific social movements cultural movements because they see an audience they see a market they see and i hate to say it they hear money and they see money signs and so when we look at history over relevance i do believe that when we see the core of the community in many cases for the black community it's religion there are specific attachments to how we value whiteness white fragility, how we support, and also how we cover it with our wokeness, but how there are sometimes elements of performance wokeness and performance activism. And so when you read Frances Ramsey, how she how she faced certain implicit bias and prejudice based upon her lifestyle, it truly challenges what we define as pro-blackness. Because I do believe Francesca Ramsey is a great example of a refined version of what pro-blackness can be and is and how if we cancel those that do not align with our traditional definition of pro-blackness we are snubbing ourselves of true liberation as a whole and individual or what we can have for the next generation after us so that leads me to our last portion for tonight's discussion who is the real fucking villain here who is the real villain, friends? And, you know, again, in Black Zoshin Karens and Other Threats to Black Lives and the Well-Being by Teresa B. Robinson, there's a chapter, Act 2, on page 81, Karens, Ken, and, the, and her kin, where we examine the intergenerational relationship of how implicit bias supports our, excuse me, many people's xenophobia, anti-blackness, but how colorism and also mothers of mass destruction, which are traditionally perceived as white women, are also circulating certain rhetoric that allows for policing the black body to be a part of the infrastructure for how we gatekeep and limit black excellence and blackness and pro-blackness. And when I say policing the black body, that's as far as the white gaze, empowering certain slurs like the N-word, or also understanding and navigating the social hierarchy that we see in not only the black liberation text, but also in what we see in hidden legacies, the African presence and European antiques. You know, T. Ward beautifully explains how history can be 
misinterpreted based upon a lack of all narratives and perspectives that gives and provides a balance and a wealth of information so the the reader can come to their own conclusions. And, you know, T. Ward beautifully explains on um, page 92 in Hidden Legacies that the, the interesting discussions emphasize many compelling events that involve African descent. When she was learning about history, and many of us when we learned about history in high school, the textbooks had a rather brief section on the uplifting figures and stories involving black excellence in America and abroad. And this is true. We see this even now. The American history books seem to focus more on the effects and struggles of slavery rather than other black history topics or areas during this specific time frame or or era although transatlantic slave stories are equally important yes to analyze and remember there are many other vital missing pieces that Roy beautifully explains and embolges and provides examples of and yet she did not see many antiques that provided a beautiful a beautiful wealth of black Victorians prospering during the 19th century and and although there are plenty she did not see this information regarding African slave revolts and pioneering black reconstruction era and era politicians and so many other innovations that were created by African descent. So in the world history view, particularly in European studies, black people did not have a part or were worth emphasizing in these textbooks. So hidden legacies, African presence and European antiques provides that that balance of information. So we're able to examine how specific archetypes and tropes develop with the support of whiteness and their attachment to whiteness. And also how they, in a sense, allow in spaces where blackness should function and flourish, white complicity does. And so we truly acknowledge who is the villain. And I truly believe that it's not a person, it's the environment. And not that individuals or readers are products of their environment, but that it is easy to assume the characteristics of our environment and to also internalize them and maintain these mythologies as a form of gatekeeping, which is why, in a sense, we cancel our own. We see this with Chrisette Michelle. We see this with Oprah. We see this with Tyler Perry. We see this with a list of other black individuals, even Dr. Umar. When Dr. Umar gets on his live and is screaming, don't bring your white wife we also need to look at his next few lives when he talks about homosexuality and how he talks about effeminizing and 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 femininity in the cisgendered black body and how he defines masculinity and then we also need to ask ourselves does this align with our ideas of pro-blackness does this provide a space for all identities of blackness and intersectionality does this provide a safe space for queer identities or expression without the gaze similar to the white gaze of being judged, of being controlled, of tone policing, of controlling the body through social welfare, excuse me, through psychological welfare and through emotional manipulation? What is a system of measurement that is used here? Who are the true gatekeepers? When we examine cancel culture, gatekeeping is the foundation as well as how we utilize, interpret, and define gender and race-based emotions. And also the tradition that 
strengthens the pillars on many people's moral compass that we perceive as not being black or not being a part of our pro-blackness and its definition. And so my questions that I want to share with you all that I want to end on is that who are the gatekeepers? How do we define the herd? If we are providing a gate, if we are establishing boundaries, if we are establishing a system of measurement, what is the herd in the audience? How are we controlling this audience? Is this a market? Is this a reflection of our history or relevance? Is this a, is this a history of our progression? Are we as progressive as we perceived? And how do we, how do we measure that progress individually and on a communal level? And lastly, gatekeeping is a reflection of access. Access is also an illustration of authority. Again, if access is an illustration of authority, who are the true gatekeepers? Who are the true villains? And so as you read this week's titles, again, Well That Escalated by Francesca Ramsey, A Black Theology of Liberation by Cone, Black Zoshin Karens and Other Threats to Black Lives and Well-Being by Teresa B. Robinson, and one of my favorite titles, Hidden Legacy, African Presence in European Antiques by T. Ward. You know, these titles will assist and guide you, but I'm really excited to hear what resonates with you. You know, this week's episode, Episode 9, Pro-Blackness and Canceling Our Own, was really a deep dive into what pro-blackness is, cancel culture, but specifically we explored four main focuses. Who is the real villain? history over relevance, white complicity and performance wokeness, but also the usage of gender and race-based emotions. You know, tonight has been wonderful. I enjoyed you all. And until next time, friend, you are not alone. Continue reading. As always, this has been wonderful and fun. Remember, friend, you are not alone. There is something for you. Continue to read. And if you need more black or queer literature, check out my website, favoritelibrarian.com, or my Instagram, favoritelibrarian. Until next time.